This is KPMG's Privately Speaking podcast series. And in this episode, you'll hear KPMG audit partner and host Erica Whitmore and Brian Wallace, partner at Access Venture Partners, discuss the changing landscape of venture capital and how both public and private companies can acclimate. So, Brian, I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Um, Brian, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself, but really excited to talk today about venture capital investing and what companies should be thinking about as well as kind of how that landscape has maybe changed a little bit in the last year plus um, since COVID-19. So with that, Brian, I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, uh, Erica. This is fun. This is my first podcast. So uh, thanks for having me. My name is Brian Wallace. Again, I'm a partner at uh, Access Venture Partners. We're a venture capital firm, mostly doing early stage uh, investing in the Rocky Mountain region. We were founded in 1999. I've been with the firm since 2005. Uh, We've invested in over 70 companies, and we are uh, happy that we're investing out of our fourth fund now, just about done, and we are closing our fifth fund this year. So we already have our first close scheduled, and uh, um, we're real excited for that. That's exciting. Yeah, that's awesome, especially given just everything that's going on in the world. Um, You know, one thing that we were talking about earlier, Brian, that I'd love to get your thoughts on is just, you know, how things have changed, right, since, um, you know, COVID-19, really since 2020, right? Um, what's, what's your perspective on the changes both at your firm as well as just what you're seeing broadly um, in venture capital? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, t- the, the pandemic was, a, you know, a very dramatic event in, for all of us. And when it first yeah. hit, you know, we didn't know what to expect. We thought this was the next, uh, you know, market bubble burst and, and, you know, how do we react to it? And, you know, the first thing we did um, was, was say, what is this going to do to our portfolio? And, uh, you know, we just had to do a quick assessment. We had to look at internally at the cash positions of all of our companies and just make sure, you know, we could weather the storm, whatever it was going to be. So that was how we initially reacted to, uh, uh, to the pandemic. And, you know, luckily, uh, we got all of our companies through, um, some not without a few bumps and bruises here, but uh, um, I think it's affected and impacted the tech industry as a whole uh, much less than the broader economy because I think we were ready for it just in the way we already worked um, and had the technology to you know stay at home and to work remote. So you know right. as far as adjusting through, I, th- I think it's just learning how to work remotely and, you know, less personally than we did before. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what have you seen, you know, more broadly in terms of the the broader venture community? Or, I mean, I, at least from my perspective, it sure seems like there's a heck of a lot of money out there, right? Um, there's a lot of deals getting done, especially towards the end of 2020 and, and well into 2021, right? What, what are you seeing from your perspective um, from a broader investing perspective? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I think what we see is, is you know, the, the statistics that we look at say that growth investing, so the stage beyond where we are, actually increased in 2020. So it was a very right. robust uh, market. We had uh, two companies that exited for, you know, nice multiples that, you know, were, were kind During of- During 2020? 
in in 2020, yes. Okay, that were got kind it. of off the radar in 1999. So yeah, you know, I think we saw more there. Uh, venture investing, early stage investing was down um, both from transaction and dollars. Not a lot, but um, and this is you know these are just stats from across the market. And I think you know our personal experience is that we were slower to put money out at early stage. And you know what we do is so much more personal than growth investing. We we can't invest off of you know balance sheets and financial forecast. Right, right. You know, we, we invest off of, you know, market opportunity and frankly being contrarian and right, you know, hoping right. that yep. the market will move our way and the product will move that way. But it's it's deeply personal and it's a connection that you have to have with the entrepreneur and you know Maybe we're just getting old, but that's hard for us to do over in telephone calls. We want to sit in person and, you know, and, and build that out. So I think, you know, as a whole, it was a little slower, but, you know, super active market. I mean, there's there's a lot of opportunities and it certainly didn't mirror what we saw in the early 2000s or, you know, right. a financial crisis in 08, 09. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of you know, COVID and 2020, how, how, if, if at all, has that changed your firm's investment strategy going forward? Uh, it really hasn't. Um, you know, I, I think COVID like any, any, you know, market force changes how, you know, the market reacts by having different investment themes and different areas of the economy of the focus, obviously stay at home work, the future of work, uh, was accelerated by everyone not going to the office. Right, so, right. Everything from, you know, do we need an office uh, or, you know, connectivity, bandwidth, you know, uh, apps to keep people connected. I mean, all of those areas are are heightened. Um, yep. And, of course, you know, we're opportunists, you know, or, you know, capitalists. And so what yeah. we, is we follow the trends. We look at what smart entrepreneurs are doing. And so... I think the only thing that's really changed for us is it's just shined a light on, you know, those areas of the industry that created opportunity. And and so, but as far as our process and as far as what we're looking for, that hasn't changed a bit. It's just harder yeah. to form that connection. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked just a little bit earlier about, you know, when the pandemic hit, you know, immediate look to your portfolio companies and how they were performing. I'm stealing from a previous conversation, but I'll give you full credit. Operational discipline, I think, is a word that I've heard you use. What the crisis forced all of us to do, when I say all of us, just industry-wide, I don't care what stage, you know, from right. a startup all the way up to what, you know, public companies, it, it really forced operational efficient, efficiencies and discipline so that hey, we've got to make sure that we're going to come out on the other side of this. So you naturally focus more on cost control uh, as opposed to revenue growth. Right. Uh, and and you, you, you really look at every single investment. So we really, you know, just hunkered down with a lot of our companies and said, okay, we need to figure out really looking at efficiency and operational execution. And And now, you know, as we come out of it, we start to switch back and focus more on not not that those aren't important, but we want right. to focus on growth. And right. those are two counterweights in an organization. It's hard to do both well, and in fact, right. you can't do both 
you know, they're, they're always competing within an organization. So with, with our model, we have to focus on growth and, you know, and, and the saying is, you know, growth is the coin of the realm and it's true before the pandemic, it's true during the pandemic and it's true now. So we really do need to focus and it doesn't mean, you know, growth at all costs, you still have to have operational efficiency, but that's really where the focus lies and will always lie with what we do. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Switching gears just a little bit, um, you know, your firm is focused on the Rocky Mountain region, right? But I would be uh, remiss if I didn't maybe give a little plug to my my hometown area, right? Um, So maybe just, you know, a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of trends and companies moving. I mean, we, we know that there's been a lot of companies moving all over, right? Whether it be Texas, uh, Florida, or Colorado, just your views, your views on that and what we're seeing in those trends. Yeah, I, you know, the Colorado market, and, and thanks for giving us a plug. Um, you know, Eric and I have worked together in this market for a long time and, you know, really seen it from the early days of having to, you know, shout from the top of the mountains to say, come here, you know, you can grow your companies here. And, and ski. And ski and, and, <laughs> and lifestyle. But, you know, that's always been a challenge too, because, you know, other investors say, well, you're just in a lifestyle place and people don't work there and you can't really grow a company that can, that can compete. Well, guess what? They're, they're wrong. We can, and we, and we have been. And so I I think the difference is, you know, we've invested in over 70 companies in Colorado alone and, you know, several, you know, broader than that in the Rocky mountain region. So, you know, have we demonstrated that you can grow as many large companies here as anywhere in the world? No. But, you know, have we demonstrated yeah. that, yes, you can here and even more so now? And you look at our, you know, current portfolio and, and we have companies that are that are competing on a global stage and are growing and we're attracting employees from all over the, you know, the country and all over the world to come here to Colorado. You know, the counter to that is that it's gotten a little bit more expensive to live here. So, right. you know, it, we'll have to see how it plays out. But I think the one thing that the, the pandemic shined a light on, it's not just Colorado's market in the Rocky Mountain region, but all markets outside of, you know, Silicon Valley and the, and the coast is that it really did cause a fundamental shift of where people are looking to invest their personal capital, which is where do I want to live and work? And I think Colorado... And, and the Rocky Mountain region is a huge beneficiary of that. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing that we talked about earlier was about the virtual workforce and some companies coming out and publicly saying, you know, we don't have a headquarters, right? We are completely 100% virtual. Just your thoughts on your thoughts on that. You might have previewed it a little bit with the uh, old school needing to be in person, right? Which I, yeah. I completely agree with. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the first question we always ask, not the first question, but, you know, early question is, where are you guys located? You know, where's your office? And I, I, it's amazing to me how many early stage companies now are, we don't have one. You know, I live in, I live in Denver. My co-founder lives in Tennessee and, you know, our dev teams in, you know, North Carolina and India and, you know, they're all over the place. And, you know, I guess, which is fine for, starting a company, but 
you know, I, 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 it's hard for us because I want to meet everyone on the team. And, you know, right. right now I can't even meet the person in Denver who might live, you know, three blocks away. But, you know, right. once we get past that, I just don't buy the long-term virtual company is a way to truly grow great companies. I, I think you lose the culture, you lose the accountability, and you lose the, you know, the draw of why people want to come work for your organization in the first place. I mean, you have to not only have a massive market, a great product, product market fit, execution, but you have to have a culture where people really want to work there and are just bought into the mission. And it goes from the CEO all the way down to, you know, the business development person is making a hundred calls a day. I mean, they all have to believe in that. I just don't think you can do that virtually nearly as effectively as you can when you're in the office being held accountable, um, you know, from your peers and your, uh, your coworkers. Yeah. And, and I, I mentioned this earlier as well. Um, our first podcast was on the remote work workforce and kind of just how that's evolving and changing and, you know, mental health um, and how many people are really struggling working, you know, everyone's situation is different, right? Maybe they have family members, maybe they have roommates, but I think a lot of people are struggling with working 100% of the time remotely, regardless of their situation. And so some, some, you know, form of meeting in person and seeing the whites of people's eyes, not through a camera, I think will be really important when we can get back to that. I totally agree. You know, and I, People ask me, how are you doing with remote work? And I just, you know, answer fine because, you know, my kids, I've got a kid in college and my daughter is a senior in high school and I'm afraid of her. So I, you know, the less I interact with her on days is, <laughs> yeah. is, is probably better. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I do feel bad. I look at these companies and, you know, we work with young people and, you know, the people who are single. I mean, when I was single and just out of the workforce, my you know, friends and my support group and, and the people I hung out with, I met at the office, you know? Yes. And so your support network. Yeah. Lose that interaction and people with young kids trying to, you know, keep them, you know, entertained, educated and, and everything when you're, when you're on lockdown, I mean, that, that's, that's tough. And and so, you know, people need other interaction with their peers and being locked down at home by ourselves with work, whether you're in an easy situation like me or a lonely one, you know, like someone by themselves just doesn't work. I mean, we're, we're social beasts and we need that. And, and, you know, I go crazy. I mean, I, I get to like two, three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm like, I, I just can't do anymore. And and I don't know about you, Brian, I think you're probably a little bit like me. I really do get energy from people and it's not, you don't get that. You get a little bit of it. I'm not going to say that I'd rather look at somebody's face like yours, Brian, than not. Um, but it's not the same as in person. Not yeah. Close. You know, with with the thing that brings us the most satisfaction, and when I say us, my partners and I, is, you know, of course, we're venture capitalists because we want to make money and we want to make our investors money. But the, yep. the true uh, thing that that motivates us is really growing these companies, and you know, starting with a team that's you know a handful of people. But you know, one of the most rewarding things that I that we can do is go to a company that's grown to 200, 300, 400 employees. And I, I've said this before: I love going in 
to a company and you start with everybody knowing you and you go in there as, as they've grown and achieved success and nobody knows who I am. And I'm, I'm yeah. great with that because I, it just shows that you create these great or help create these great organizations. The entrepreneurs are the ones who do it. And, you know, we just help them on that journey. But, you know, I, I think the office party coming up in the fall are going to be epic. I think you, I think you're right there. So just to switch gears um, a little bit, we've got everything from small companies that are just starting out to, um, you know, hopefully some small public companies or maybe even some big ones. Um, but if you have a company that's looking to get that kind of scale, right, where they potentially need venture capital to get there, what what would be your top three to five pieces of advice for those entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's it's, it's always a great question, and and I think venture capitalists are are replete with answers of you know metrics of saying you need to get to X and MRR, you know run rate, you need to have you know this this you know those are those are arbitrary gateways I think to try to stage set the focus of entrepreneurs, but I think at the earliest stage the entrepreneur has to be really honest with themselves and say you know, should I even raise venture capital in the first place? Right. Do I play in a market that can, you know, can create not just a winner, but multiple winners? And, you know, can I really, am I in a market and do I have a product that matters enough in that market to where this could be a $100 million revenue company, not a $10 million revenue company? And that, you know, those are the bars that, that venture capitalists really need in order to create the winners in our portfolio. And right. you know, the reality is very few do, but everyone has to have that opportunity. So I, right. I tell entrepreneurs, almost every entrepreneur I meet with and say, you know, why do you want to raise venture capital? My, my richest friends never raised venture capital. Um, right. it's, it's, it's a path, but it's not the only path. So I think that's the first step is to even determine is what you're doing and what your product does serve in a market that should raise venture capital. And, right. you know, and, and then from there, can you demonstrate that it is truly a product that will create, you know, demand pull in the market, meaning your customers are going to really want and buy and search for you rather than you have to spend a lot of money pushing the product out. Um, right. And, and so, with where we invest, you know, we do everything from kind of later seed stage investing to Series A investing. And, you know, we want to see the early signs of product market fit. And that can mean a lot of different things. But to distill it down from just a capital, our money should be used to grow sales and marketing organizations. Yep. Every right. dollar we invest should create recurring revenue or sales of some kind. And if our money has to uh, focus too much on creating operational efficiency or worse, fixing a product, then yeah. we're not, that's not what we do. Like, we can help fix sales and marketing and accelerate by adding right. people, but, you know, the next product so you're is like the, fuel. the first. Yeah, I, we don't know what we're doing with product. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
what about diligence? You talked earlier about, um, you know, the diligence that you do with companies. And I, I thought you gave a really good example of just some of the things that you do just to, again, for the benefit of the companies on the phone to hear some of the process that you go through as part of diligence. Yeah, the, the way I like to describe diligence is, is that's not that hard. You know, that part of our job just really, frankly, isn't that hard. It's really hard to find companies that fit the criteria because to get to that stage, yes, it's an unreasonable ask to have a company to take on a large amount of capital and to grow at an unreasonable, uncomfortable speed. It puts a lot of stress on an organization and most companies break, which is why our success rate is low. It's hard. As far as diligence, I mean, you know, it's talking to customers or potential customers and, and, you know, why did you buy the product? What else right. did you look at? You know, what problem does it solve? Are you going to keep, you know, are you going to keep buying the product? Are you going to keep using the product? So, you know, it it really isn't that challenging to do. It's, you know, it's a lot of work, but it's not what we do isn't that hard. And, you know, we do four to six investments a year. So we, you know, we make four to six important decisions a year. That's it. As long as I do okay on those, and we're going to be fine. If we screw, you know, too many of those up, then we won't. But so far, so good. Yeah, knock on wood, right? Exactly. Well, Brian, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I have a feeling I might ask you to be a reoccurring guest, so just be prepared for that. (laughs) Might not be your your last podcast with us, but thank you so much for taking the time to to chat. I think our listeners will really like uh, what you had to say. Maybe they won't like it, but I think it'll be really valuable. Oh, they're going to like it, Erica. We we know they will. No, I uh, (laughs) thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope uh, podcast number one hit the mark. I think it did. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Privately Speaking Podcast. And be sure to subscribe to this series to be notified of new episodes.